Good morning. Hey, uh, if you have your Bibles, turn with me to Joshua chapter 5. We're going to be in the first 12 verses of chapter 5. We'll save the last part of chapter 5 for next week. Uh, But if you're new here or visiting, we've been going through a series called Stepping into God's Promises, a study through the book of Joshua, uh, through the first half of the book of Joshua. Uh, And Israel is on a journey from the wilderness to the promised land. They just got redeemed from slavery. They've been wandering around in the desert. uh, And God is still moving them towards the destiny uh, and the promises that he had planned for them from all of eternity. Um, That's what this book is about and everything that comes along with it and uh, what that looks like in our lives as God's people today uh, who are staring in the face of adversity but also staring farther into the face of God's promises uh, for us here in Santa Barbara and Goleta and Isla Vista and Montecito and abroad. Um, This book has some wonderful things uh, to say to us. We looked, yes, uh, last week at what it means for God's people to look backwards uh, and remember what God has done. This week is called moving forward towards God's promises. Um, And so if you're there, uh, Joshua chapter 5, I'm going to read the first 12 verses just all the way through, and then we'll get started. It says this, As soon as all the kings of the Amorites who were beyond the Jordan to the west and all the kings of the Canaanites who were by the sea heard that the Lord had dried up the waters of the Jordan for the people of Israel until they had crossed over, their hearts melted and there was no longer any spirit in them because of the people of Israel. At that time, the Lord said to Joshua, make flint knives and circumcise the sons of Israel a second time. So Joshua made flint knives and circumcised the sons of Israel at uh, Gibeath Haharalath. And this is the reason why Joshua circumcised them. All the males of the people who came out of Egypt, all the men of war, had died in the wilderness on the way after they had come out of Egypt. Though all the people who came out had been circumcised, yet all the people who were born on the way in the wilderness afterwards, they had come out of Egypt, had not been circumcised. For the people of Israel walked 40 years in the wilderness until all the nation, the men of war who came out of Egypt, perished because they did not obey the voice of the Lord. The Lord swore to them that they would not let them see the land. He would not let them see the land that the Lord had sworn to their fathers to give us a land flowing with milk and honey. So it was their children, whom he raised up in their place, that Joshua circumcised. For they were uncircumcised because they had not been circumcised on the way. When the circumcising of the whole nation was finished, they remained in their places in the camp until they were healed. And the Lord said to Joshua, Today I have rolled away the reproach of Egypt from you. And so the name of this place is called Gilgal to this day. While the people of Israel were encamped at Gilgal, they kept the Passover on the 14th uh, 14th day of the month in the evening on the plains of Jericho. And the day after the Passover, on that very day, they ate of the produce of the land, unleavened cakes and parched grain. And the manna ceased the day after they ate of the produce of the land. There was no longer manna 
for the people of Israel, but they ate of the fruit of the land of Canaan that year. This is God's word. Heavenly Father, as we study your word today, may your word study us and reveal all that is in there that you want to deal with today. Hurt and pain, confusion, turmoil, stubbornness, pride, legalism. All the things that we intentionally or unintentionally gather around us that ends up keeping us from experiencing and knowing more of you. We pray that you would, because of your great love for your people, remove those things. Roll back our approach to uncover our shame that we might be able to run into the arms of our Father and realign our lives with the good news of the kingdom of God. And we say, as the church has been saying for 2,000 years, according to your word, Lord, may your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Moving forward towards God's promises. Um, What I want to pull out of this very interesting chapter are three things. One, a covenant relationship with God. You hear a lot about circumcision in the first two-thirds of this chapter, and it's about a covenant relationship with God. I want to talk about that. And I want to talk about what a covenant relationship with God actually means. It means a couple things. Uh, it means, or it refers to some things we can expect from God and things that God expects from us. And that's the, th- the three things I want to talk about today in this narrative, in the story of the people of Israel as they're waiting uh, to step into God's promises. And, you know, when I say a covenant relationship with God, you, know, you read this whole chapter, and it doesn't say covenant once. It doesn't say covenant at any point in time. It says circumcision, right? Circumcision is where I'm getting this allusion to a covenant. Now, Uh, He brings this up in the first few verses, talks about the reason for it in the verses after. Uh, I'm assuming you all know what circumcision is, right? I don't need to explain it. I'm not going to explain it. Uh, Too sensitive an issue. So if you want to know what it is, Wikipedia it. Uh, But suffice it to say, today I can say this. It refers, and this is really important, to a a cutting away of the skin, okay? Okay. This is going to be important as the story goes on. It has some metaphorical connotations for our heart and for our spirit, but that's what it is. He speaks about it. They actually do it, and I love that this chapter opens up with the posture of God's enemies, right? In the Old Testament, it often had to do with people and nations who are against God's nation, a theocracy. Today, Paul tells us that our real enemy is not actually people. It's not flesh and blood. It is the devil, principalities, powers, authorities, rulers in the darkness and in the heavenly realm. And I love this picture of God's enemies, right? All those in the spiritual realm who mean to do you harm is that they are quaking in their boots. So terrified is this fortress in Jericho and abroad uh, that uh, Israel has 
the time to do this medical procedure that's leaving them uh, healing for a, uh, for a certain amount of time. The, the enemy is locked up. They're locked up in their fortress, quaking in their boots because of the power of God. I love how Joshua chapter 5 starts off like that, but it's not about that. It's about circumcision and a covenant relationship with God. He goes on to say in verse 4 through 8 the reason for something like circumcision. He says, uh, he goes on to say that it's because there's a new generation that has not yet been circumcised. In other words, there was an old uh, generation, they've already been through this process, uh, the circumcision with God, but they died off. He goes to great pains to describe why an older generation died off. is because God was on the cusp of bringing them into the promised land, and they were so stubborn and so difficult and so stuck in their ways that they were unwilling to step into the promises of God themselves. And so he let them die in the wilderness. And he said, I'm going to use the, second gen- the next generation to do uh, what I promised to the generations of old. This is, you, you cannot let this escape you right now. That God could have had them where they were supposed to be 40 years prior. This was their destiny. This was their inheritance. It already belonged to them. It's as if I paid for your meal at a restaurant and you refused to eat it. The meal belongs to you, but you never even sat down to the table. Israel never sat down to the table. And God said, all right, well, you're uh, about old enough. Uh, You're not going to make it too far, so I'm just going to wait until uh, this generation passes with all of your idols and all of your stubbornness and all of your rebellion, and I'm going to work through your kids. And so that's... uh, Goes, uh, the author goes to great pains to remind us that it's not, at least in this situation, it's not God withholding promises. It's God's people who are uh, too myopic and rebellious in their understanding to receive those promises. And how many promises does God lavish into our laps today? I love what Ephesians says, that all the spiritual blessings of heaven are ours in Christ Jesus. We have so much as God's people, as sons and daughters of God. If you were to dare to look through the scriptures at what belongs to you because you are in Christ, I think it would bring a chill to your life. I think it would cause uh, the hairs on the back of your neck to stand up for you to know what belongs to you in the spiritual realm being a son and a daughter of God. But we shouldn't pass this paragraph without at least asking ourselves how many promises do we fail to ever see or realize because of things going on inside of us or between us and the Lord? Certainly this happens with God's people in this generation. It certainly happens in our generation as well and in uh, the generation surrounding us. But God is reminding us, hey, the promises are yours. You just need to step out into them. I've done everything that you need. Step out. And circumcision is basically a covenant ritual. You trace this all the way back to Genesis chapter 17, where God uh, chooses this man named Abram, changes his name to Abraham, calling him the father of many nations, again telling him, before he ever realizes the promises, the promise is yours. I'm giving you this promise, it's yours. I just need you to believe in, in, in what I'm saying and step into the promises that I'm already giving you. And then in Genesis chapter 17, he, he uh, steps into a covenant, which is a type of a, a special type of relationship 
with another person, a mutual relationship, and he ratifies that relationship through circumcision. So it starts with Abraham, and it points to, it points to this relationship between God and people. Now, a lot of people today have no, maybe you don't have a deep understanding of what a covenant is. It's not like a word that we generally use in everyday language. You don't use it in the workplace. Probably not. Maybe you do. You might have only heard of it in context of a marriage ceremony. Maybe you've heard that marriage is a covenant between, you know, blah, 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 blah. But that's maybe the only time you've ever used it. Maybe you have no working understanding of what a covenant is. And that's very interesting, right? Because what we see in the Bible is that is the primary way that God's people are to relate to God is through covenant. And so I want you to think about that. The primary way that we are to relate to God, many people don't even understand. What is a covenant? It's something just, it's just this biblical word that maybe we have not unpacked, so we're gonna unpack it today. But I want you to think about that. That is the primary way that God has chosen for people to relate to him is through a covenant relationship. So if you don't know that, you might be relating to him in a different way. Maybe for some of you, you project onto God whatever it is that you know. Maybe what you know are taskmasters and authorities in your life that have pushed you down and oppressed you. And so maybe you're, you're projecting that onto God. He's like an angry employee that just wants, you know, just wants the bottom line. He just wants me to do a bunch of stuff, doesn't really care about me, that's God. That might be your understanding. Uh, you might be on the complete opposite end of that. There, there's some of you on the extreme end who maybe you, you approach God, you view him as an angry person who's just going to beat you over the head for doing wrong things. And he doesn't care about you. He just wants, he just wants the end result. But on this end uh, is the, the loving relationship person. You're all into loving relationships. But you don't understand covenant. There's a movie that came out uh, some time ago called The Stepford Wives. You ever uh, heard of that movie? It was where these guys had this, uh, this uh, twisted idea of turning their wives, their spouses into robots so that their wives would do all the things that they wanted them to do and they would never contradict them. And the, the moral that comes out of this movie is that that's not true love, right? If you're in a loving relationship with someone... Uh, they have to be able to contradict you. They have to be their own person. They have to contradict you because they're different from you. And that's a loving relationship. When I am in a, a, a marriage with my wife, Brianna, we love each other. We uh, have things in common together, but we're also different people. And she has the right to contradict me on a variety of things, and she does from time to time. And it compliments me, right? We complement each other. We're different, and our differences complement. That's true love. So on one end, there's a sense in which some of us might think of God as this angry taskmaster. On this other end, there's some of us who are like, ah, I don't know what he is, but he's like a genie in the bottle. You know, I just like rub the, the lamp, and I get three, I, I, lo- I, I open up the Bible three times, and I get a, a wish. Uh, and that's how we kind of approach God. But he's not a Stepford God, and he's not an angry taskmaster. He's not someone who just overloads our lives with arbitrary rules, but neither is he a a God who never contradicts us. His ways are higher than our ways, and his thoughts are higher than our thoughts, and you can expect that in a relationship like with 
like that, that he's going to contradict your way of life sometimes. What we have in the Bible is not either of those pictures. What we have is a covenant relationship with God. And a covenant, if I can explain it as simply as possible, is a beautiful, stunning blend of law and love, okay? It is both of those things. So love is that self-giving, self-sacrificial way of approaching somebody else. If I love you, I am considering you more important than myself. I am, I am, uh, my, my deepest desire is to bless you, even at my own expense. But when I, I bring up law, I'm bringing up that in a relationship, in a healthy relationship, we each have healthy expectations of the other person. So I love you self-sacrificially, but I also have healthy expectations of you in this relationship. Think of a, uh, any type of relationship that's made it longer than a year, right? Think of a healthy marriage. There are two people uh, who love each other from death, uh, till death do they part. Uh, they are supposed to serve each other self-sacrificially, but they also have some basic expectations, right? Like, don't cheat on me. That's like a basic expectation. No one says, well, that's so legalistic that you even asked for that. No, we expect that type of thing. So in a marriage, there is law and love. Why? Because a marriage is a covenant. And that covenant, that marriage relationship is supposed to give us like a, a finite, smaller example of how we're to relate to God. When we enter into a relationship with God, we're entering into a, a relationship of law and love. He gives of himself freely to us in lavish, unbelievable, unadulterated love, and yet he also has some expectations, healthy ones, of his people. And when the people of God uh, underwent circumcision, what they were doing, all the way back, uh, going back to Genesis chapter 17, all the way until now, uh, here in the text, it was a sign and an outward pledge, the way that you would put a ring on your finger, like in a covenant marriage, of saying, yes, I agree to this, and I'm all about it. I want to receive from your love. I also want to give you uh, these things that you expect of me. It's mutual expectation and mutual self-giving love. It's a pledge on their part. Uh, it's God's people, uh, with a, a physical sign pledging their allegiance to God. But it's also, because it's a covenant, it's two ways, right? It's also God pledging himself to his people. And so this is how it starts off. It's essentially showing us that God desires an engaging, interactive relationship with us. That is one of his deepest desires with humanity, is that he would be able to engage in an interactive relationship with his people. Not him to you, not you just to him, but both of you together in this covenant relationship. And so, out of that covenant, he spells out certain things that you see come up in Joshua chapter 5 of what we can expect from God. Okay, you might be thinking, okay, who is this God of Israel uh, and the God of the Bible, I'm thinking about whether I want to know him, what can I expect from God? Well, what you see here and what flows to the surface in this narrative all over the Bible, in fact, but especially here, is that you have a God who pursues people. He initiates the conversation and the relationship. 
when you were in slavery, if we were to borrow the, the analogy of Israel, when you were in slavery, he came after you. He didn't wait for you to deliver yourself from slavery to come after him. He comes after you. You have a God who comes after you. You also have a God who liberates you from that slavery. Look at the people of Israel. Look at to the lengths that God has gone after his people. He comes after them, but he liberates them from slavery. But you'd also have to go just a step farther. As we've been uh, uh, throwing this out for the past few weeks, we don't have a God who simply delivers us from slavery and then sticks us in a corner so that we won't break things in his living room, in his heavenly living room, but he actually brings us into his family. He gives us family responsibility. He gives us his inheritance as our heavenly father. He gives us participation into some of the wonderful things that he's doing in the world, but he starts in our life. So what can we expect from God? We can expect someone who comes after us, liberates us, and provides us a place to belong. We see this in verse 9. He says, uh, starting in in verse 8, when the circumcising, there's that sign of the covenant, right? Right? Of the whole nation was finished. They remained in their places in the camp until they had healed. Verse 9. And the Lord said to Joshua, right? Here's what that sign symbolized. This is incredible. He said to Joshua, Today I have rolled away the reproach of Egypt from you. I have rolled away the reproach of Egypt from you. And so the name of that place is called Gilgal to this day. Gilgal uh, sounds like the Hebrew word for to roll. And so... God is saying, after this, this event, after the sign of the covenant, I want you to know that this is a decisive event in your life where I have, I, I want this to remind you for the rest of your days that you, you are no longer defined by what you used to be. I'm rolling away your reproach. Uh, another word for reproach is shame. Um, today, I love how the NLT puts it. It says, today I've rolled away the shame of your slavery in Egypt. Shame and reproach, uh, if we were to expound upon that and put it into, maybe a, if we were to rephrase it for the sake of this, this sentence, shame and reproach for Israel would be that season in their past that they lived uh, lived through, and we'd also have to say the enemy's accompanying lies. You can, you can imagine Israel going through that bout where Moses is delivering them, and yet time and time again through those ten plagues, Pharaoh continues to say no, and he makes their life even harder, and he's mocking their God, and he's mocking them. This, these are some of the things that God is saying right now, that I'm rolling that away from you. It's no longer yours. So he's saying in this sense, I'm, I'm taking that old season that you used to be stuck in. I'm removing that. I'm taking you out of that. But I'm also removing all the lies of the enemy that would dare to keep you there. Because you, practically speaking, you're no longer in Egypt, but perhaps the lies and the ridicule and the mocking are, are keeping your mind there. You're walking in the promises, but you're, you're defeated. I'm, I'm rolling it all away from you. None of that belongs to you anymore. We have a God here who rescues slaves from bondage, but he doesn't just rescue them. He adopts them into his family. And so God's people, they're no longer slaves. For Israel, it was actual slavery to Egypt. 
For us, it's slavery to a variety of things. We no longer have to be defined by slavery. God tells us he defines them now as his children. He doesn't even stop with with rescue and redemption. For right there, you'd be defined as someone who needed rescue. But he goes a step farther, and he actually brings slaves into his family thereby defining them as sons and daughters. Think of how that would have elevated the dignity of of, of the children of Israel. I used to be the lowest on the rung of society in Egypt. I was a slave. I wasn't even a citizen of my nation. And now I am a citizen of God's household. This is the type of thing that God does. He defines them as as his children, that they are no longer slaves this is, this is really powerful and important for us today to get a hold of because truly the past is one of the most powerful things that we know, right? Like Israel, bondage and shame and reproach are often locked up in places in our past. It's things that have happened long ago in our past that inform how we operate today. Shame is an immensely powerful motivator. If you have been shamed in the past, it is very difficult to be free from that. And so because of that, our past drives so much of the way that we behave today. I, Chris Lazo, act out in various ways, largely in part because of how I've been formed in the years past. I am who I am today because of a variety of things that I have done or have been done to me over the years coming up until this moment. I didn't just roll out of bed today and I'm, I am who I am. I am the product of my past. And some of you perhaps can resonate with a sentence like that. Some of you uh, were hurt in the past, maybe abused physically, emotionally, sexually. A bunch of things perhaps were done that were, were horrible and that still shapes how you act and think today. You know the power of the past. Some of you, maybe it isn't like a huge, uh, terrible thing. It doesn't sound terrible on paper, and yet it still informs you. Some of you, maybe you grew up in a family uh, that had good intentions, and they wanted you to be the best that you could be, and maybe they didn't have a very good life, you know? And, but they wanted their kids to have a good life, so what did they tell you? Work hard. Get straight A's. Anything less than straight A's is stupid. You know, it's worthless. It's shameful. I want you to do well in school and I want you to be the best and anything less than the best is, is not good enough, not good enough, not good enough, not good enough, not good enough. And then you took that into school, you took that from your childhood into school, into your adult life, into college, perhaps you took it into your career and now it's bleeding its way into your family life, maybe into your relationships, not good enough, not good enough. And you see how something even that was so well-intended is forming you today, and perhaps you're thinking, you're projecting that image onto God right now. I'm not good enough. Not good enough. Maybe it's something else. Maybe your family had an aversion to conflict. You never dealt with conflict. You just suppressed everything that you're feeling, and so you're doing that right now. Maybe you're mad at God, but you won't tell him. Maybe you're mad at me, and you haven't been telling me for years. You're just growling at me. You're like in the 10th row, just like, thieves. <laughs> Our families of origin are one of the most powerful shapers of human behavior. 
even if we have great families, they shape us for the good and they shape us for the bad. So much of what we do, both good and bad, is shaped by where we came from. As an example, uh, my grandpa, full-blooded Filipino, came over from the Philippines to California to start a new life, encountered a lot of difficulties, racism, uh, poverty, all of that stuff, and out of that emerged very strong human, right? And he had this tendency to protect himself, and he became a fighter. And I come from a long line of people who had to fight. My dad came from his dad, my grandpa, uh, came of age in the 50s, uh, and a young adult in the 60s, encountered some of the same things that my grandpa did, uh, decided to marry a white woman, uh, which I, I'm told was not the thing to do in the 60s. Did it anyway, because that's who my dad is. Stubborn. Encountered a whole mess of confrontations in there. Became even stronger. Became a fighter. I found that three generations down, I, I have not encountered. Uh, racial prejudice is uh, very real in our world. I personally do not, have not encountered it the way that my grandpa did uh, in the 30s, my dad in the the 50s and 60s. Um, and yet, however, I will find myself being confronted on basic things and feeling this boiling over within me. It's that fighter. I'm protecting myself. And I'm able to trace it back through my past into my own family line. We are deeply shaped we are deeply shaped. Like, in the past, like years prior, it could just be someone disagreeing with me, and I'll just start to get, I would start to get angry. Not anymore. Just kidding. <laughs> it start to boil over, wondering, like, where is this coming from? It's coming from my reproach. And God says to people like me and to people like you and to people like Israel, here's what you can expect from me. If you, want to, if you want to enter into a relationship with me, I will roll your reproach away. I will roll your shame and your reproach and those elements of your past away. Like we saw last week, we need to take trips into the past in order to go forward. But last week what we said was uh, we need to look into the past to see how God has saved us, to see what God has done on our behalf. This week I'm saying, sometimes we need to go into the past to see our brokenness. We need to see where those elements of brokenness are so that God can actually heal them. We need to see where some of those bad habits come from, where that boiling over for me comes from. But maybe for you, maybe where those impossible standards came from, maybe where that aversion to conflict, where that rage comes from, where that uh, addiction comes from, all of those things that are such strangleholds in our life now, they are anchored in something, generations past. And for some of us, God might be wanting to take you there so that you can face it, but not so that you can be stuck there. But because naming it is often half the battle. When you see your own sin, you see your brokenness, you see where you're trapped in your vulnerability, you're able to say to God, there it is, I need help. Because the truth is, for the believer, 
Your past might explain who you are today, but it does not have to define who you are today. Your past might explain you, but it doesn't have to define you. We acknowledge where those things are and where they come from. In fact, so we can open those painful places up to the presence of Jesus Christ who enters in by the power of his Holy Spirit and starts a healing process with him. In fact, I love what Paul said in Romans chapter 8, verse 15, to borrow that, that uh, metaphor of slavery. He said, for you did not receive the spirit of slavery, speaking to believers, you didn't receive the spirit of f- slavery from the Father in order to fall back into fear. What you received was the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. You've received a different spirit than the ones that have formed you along the way. You might have been shaped by your past, but you do not any longer have to be defined by your past. You are now able to be defined by your new family, by your father. So to make this covenant relationship happen, God offers us a new family where we can be free from the shame of our past and our slavery. Here's what God expects from us. That was what we can expect from God. This isn't an exhaustive list, just looking at what we're getting from the text. Probably a lot we can say here. Um, But those are some things we can expect from God. What God expects from us, we'd have to say from the rest of the story, is the 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 face, the faith to trust in him in these new seasons in order to step out. That if he's calling us to step into a new season where that reproach can be rolled away, he simply asks us to trust him enough to step into those promises. Don't be like that older generation in Israel. Trust me enough to step out. Look at what he does in verse 12. It says in chapter 5, verse 12, the manna ceased the day that they started to eat the produce of the land. In other words, they're already on the day after Passover, they're starting to eat the produce of the land. Unleavened cakes and parched grain. Yum. Sounds like a feast. Must have been a feast for them because guess what they were eating for 40 years? Manna. Do you know what manna is? It's like a spongy, dusty, bready material that nobody in here wants. We talk about it metaphorically like the manna from heaven, but if manna from heaven fell upon you, you would probably run. You know what manna means literally? It, the word manna literally in Hebrew means what is it? Because that's what it means. I'm assuming that's what the, the authors of the first, uh, the author of the, the first five books of the Bible called it in retrospect because that's probably what Israel said when this dusty, snowy material started to fall and they couldn't find anything else to eat. What is this? God, you promised us the world, but this is what we get? We get dust from the sky? Like you could have rained down literally anything, God. You could have rained down kale and like free-range beef, but this is what we get? This is, we get dusty, bready material. What is it? In fact, we see in Numbers chapter 11, verse 6, and 21, verse 5, that they didn't like it. In case we have any illusions that this is like the best thing to ever happen to them, they did not like it. They didn't know what it was. They were tired of it. They complained about what they used to have in slavery. You're careful. If you're not careful, you start to reminisce and get nostalgic about what it used to be before you were following Christ. 
Now, this is hard. God is, God is expecting stuff of me. He's pushing me into an area that I don't, I, I'm not ready for. It used to be so much easier when I could just drink away my problems. When I used to live just, uh, just this lascivious lifestyle, I could do whatever I want. I didn't have to think about things like community and relationship and my brokenness and all of this stuff, this stupid preacher. I'm growling at him. I'm going to hold a grudge because I've got conflict problems. But Israel was also doing this. They didn't see in the manna the blessing that God was hoisting onto their laps. It wasn't their ideally envisioned situation. Maybe you're in a, a situation that is not your ideally envisioned situation too. You're wondering, I thought God told me he was going to do this. You know why God gave them manna? It wasn't because that's what we can expect to eat in the kingdom of heaven. That's like his favorite meal or anything. It's because he was testing their hearts. He wanted to know how dependent on God they were. He wanted to see their faith. He wants us to step out in faith. He, he said this in Deuteronomy chapter 8, verse 3. Listen to this. It says, and God humbled you, speaking about that, that generation in the wilderness. He humbled you and let you hunger and then fed you with manna, which you did not know. What is it? Nor did your fathers know. Listen, that he might make you know that man does not live by bread alone, but man lives by every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. He gave them this in a particular season in their life so that they would learn to depend on the word of the Lord so that truly the word of God would be for them life. I love what the apostle Peter would later say to Jesus. I believe in the gospel of John when all of Jesus' disciples left him and he looks at Peter and the other 12 and says, you, you're gonna go too? And Peter just says, just exclaims, where else can we go, Lord? Where else would we turn? You alone have the words of eternal life. Your word for me is like honey upon my lips, the psalmist would say. We eat it. It feeds our souls. But that was in Deuteronomy. The test was in Deuteronomy. We're not in Deuteronomy anymore. We're in Joshua. And in Joshua, we see a clear transition from a season of testing into a season of harvest. Now, many of us will still go through seasons of testing. But what Joshua is telling us is the harvest is coming. You might be right in the middle of a season of testing. Like, I don't feel God. I don't hear God. None of the promises the preacher boy tells me about are, uh, I, are being manifest. I don't understand what's happening around me. I'm about ready to give up. And God is saying to you through Joshua chapter five, hang in there. Your harvest is coming. Some of you are asking, well, when? Can I, like, timeline? Five days? Five days? I don't know. We should know by now that God almost never gives us timelines. <laughs> but he does give us the end goal. He does tell us where he's going to bring us. But God also seems to be all about the process. Some of you are in a season of waiting, and he's more concerned right now with what you are and what you're going to do in the waiting and what he's going to do in you in the waiting, sometimes in the end goal. But he wants to comfort you right now and to encourage you by saying, hey, 
It's not always going to be a wilderness. The harvest is coming. And I want to prepare your heart so that you will be willing to step out because I've got great things planned for you. Verse 10 through 11, I love this. They celebrate Passover. We talked about that last week where they were preparing on the 10th day to celebrate Passover to remember how God saved them in the past, how he parted the Red Sea. He's parting the Jordan. What's interesting about this is that he now ties, the author is now tying Passover. It always up until this point used to be tied to this incredible event where God took them through the Red Sea and redeemed them from slavery. Now for the first time, he's tying this, uh, this, this sacrament to the promised land. It used to remind God's people of how they were slaves and were redeeming them from slavery. It'll always do that. But now I want it to remind you of the future. It used to remind you of the past. Now I want you to remember the future, where I am taking you. Every time you eat of this meal, I want you to see the destiny that I have in store for you. He's speaking of a new season where they would mature as the family of God and even begin to learn how to feed themselves. The question that always comes up and is coming up, I think, unspoken right now is, are you going to follow me? I'm bringing you back to your past to heal you of some of those wounds so that I can bring you into the future, into the destiny that I have called you to step into. And God is the one who initiates that relationship, right? He came after you while you were still enslaved to your sin. He came after Israel while they were still enslaved to Egypt. He doesn't require us to pull ourselves up from the bootstraps. No, the Bible tells us in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8, that we are saved by grace, not of our own works. All God asks of his people is, do you believe in what I'm about to do in your life? Do you trust me enough to step into the zone? I'm going to do it all. I would have done it all for that first generation but they didn't receive, are you gonna receive? And I think he's saying that same thing to you and to me today. I've got great things in store for my people in the city of Santa Barbara, for their families, for their workplaces, for their careers, for their inner lives, for their emotional health, for their communities, for their social life. I have so much in store for you that it would blow your mind are you ready for it? I don't need you to have to stir those things up or to make them happen. I will do it, but do you believe me enough to step in faith into some of those things? Unfortunately, that last generation never realized those promises. author of Joshua says that they perished because they did not obey the voice of the Lord and the Lord swore to them that they would not see the land that the Lord had sworn to their fathers to give them a land flowing with milk and honey notice that they were all people who had been circumcised in covenant relationship with God here's the danger of things like circumcision maybe for us it's more like baptism or insert any like religious practice church attendance reading your bible all of that stuff is we can begin to depend on the outward physical sign instead of God himself, right? 
just like Israel. We're circumcised. We're the people of God, man. I don't know if you know about us. We got the scrolls. We know Hebrew. We got the stories. We saw the water, the ocean piling up in pillars. We're bad. We can begin to depend on some of those things rather than God himself. And when, when you end up, what you end up having then when that, sort, when that sort of thing happens, like here, is a bunch of people doing a bunch of religious things. And perhaps to the, to the visitor, it might even look really spiritual. Wow, building, you know, building in the middle of Santa Barbara, hundreds of people, that's awesome. Bunch of people have been baptized, maybe even lifting their hands, outward expressions of, a good outward expressions that are supposed to point towards something on the inside. But if we become the same thing that Israel was doing in that first generation, what we would end up with is a bunch of people doing a bunch of religious things, but not having that inner transformation that leads to an actual relationship, an actual obedience, an actual freedom. What you have is people who are still enslaved and in bondage to the old life, but that look really great on the outside. I don't know about you, but I have done that for years. And it is tiring and exhausting. And it has left me desiring something more. Don't want to fake it anymore. I think that the aversion... With the, with the true transformation is that we know it's going to cost us something, right? True freedom always costs. Perhaps we're a little scared about what God will require of us. Until we remember that God is always good. He's always kind. And even when he takes stuff from our lives that is painful for us to release, he's doing it because he's a good father and he knows that it's going to be better for you. Are you willing to undergo the cost for true freedom, for true transformation? Transformation is something that can only happen by the indwelling power of the Spirit. You can't get it through circumcision. Thank God. You can't get it through physical baptism. You can't get it through going to a church. You can't get it through going to reality. You can't get it through a list that, you know, fill in your list of religious observances. Those things are simply signs and outward uh, results of what is supposed to happen on the inside. They do not have the power to change you. That's why Paul would say in Corinthians, neither circumcision counts for anything nor uncircumcision. You're circumcised, you're uncircumcised, I don't care. What matters is keeping the commandments of God. People who have been changed from the inside out who are able to then step into God's promises and into his kingdom. He would say to the Romans, uh, circumcision indeed is of value. The outward signs are good. The religious observances are good. Church attendance, reading your Bible, all of that stuff, it's good. But if you break the law, your circumcision becomes uncircumcision. It's good if you're actually doing the will of God. But if you're not obeying God, that stuff counts for anything. You're a whitewashed wall. You look good on the outside, but not on the inside. What is needed is a real relationship with God that transforms people from the inside out. You might be asking yourself, well, how do I know that I'm in a relationship with God? Begin to look for pieces of actual transformation. 
That's a good place to start. Circumcision, baptism, all of those things, they're only a sign of a transformative relationship. That's why even the prophets of old would begin to speak, alluding to something that would happen in the, in the future, to a circumcision of the heart. Deuteronomy chapter 10, verse 16, God would say through the, that prophet, you know what? Circumcise, therefore, the, the foreskin of your heart and be no longer stubborn. Remember that cutting away of the, out, of the outer shell? God is using that metaphor to speak of the heart. What I really want and what these things point to is the day that will come when I remove that outer shell of your heart, that thing that is so bound up from your past and from your pain and from, your, uh, from the evil inside of you that you can't listen to me, you don't want to listen to me. I'm going to step in one day and I'm going uh, to peel that away and I'm going to invade the deepest part of who you are. In fact, Paul would say in Romans chapter 2, verse 21, uh, 29, what is, Israel, uh, what is Israel anyway? He'd say a Jew is one who is one inwardly. And circumcision is a matter of the heart. By the Spirit, not by the letter. His praise is not from man, but from God. So how do you enter into and experience this covenant relationship with God? There must be a supernatural occurrence within you that can only happen by the supernatural power and hand of the living God himself. There is nothing you can do to change who you are, but God can do it. And he sent a man. He sent himself in the, in the form of a man in order to do that. One day, God would remove our hardened hearts and give us a new heart. And the gospel of the kingdom is that Jesus came thousands of years ago in order to do just that, to bring transformation to bear upon our broken and helpless estates. And one day, Jesus himself would be in this garden talking with one of the most religious people on the planet of that day, Nicodemus, leader of the Pharisees. And Nicodemus came to him in the middle of the night and was asking him, how can, you know, how can, I, how can I be a part of what you're doing? And Jesus answered in his usual cryptic way, which I'll explain in a bit. But he said, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. And right there he's referring to a, prof a prophecy in Ezekiel about inner transformation, right? And then he says, that which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. But don't marvel that I say to you, you must be born again. How do I enter into a relationship with the God of the universe? You must be born again. Well, I'm already born again. How can I experience this covenant relationship with God? You must be renewed by the power and the refreshing power and presence of the Holy Spirit. This brings us to the second and final thing that God expects from us. He expects faith. He also expects in that faith a pledge of allegiance. This was what circumcision was pointing towards with Israel anyway. It was simply a pledge of what was happening in their hearts. Today we might say the uh, water baptism, which has no power in itself, the Apostle Peter says. It's not the washing of the dirt on our skin that does anything supernatural. It's what it points to. It, it, it means our heart has been changed. Paul would say in Colossians chapter 2, In him also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands. 
by putting off the body of the flesh, the old man or woman, by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. You have been changed from the inside out. And so what this might mean for many of you here in this room might be in two different places. You know, God, God, if we were to look at this story and summarize it, we'd have to say God desires a transformative relationship with human beings. He's not a taskmaster. He's not a genie in a bottle. He is the almighty and holy God who wants to be in a relationship in which he loves you, but also changes you and makes you just like him. How do we do that? We trust him. And that might look different depending on who you are. Some of you might still be in that waiting period, that season of testing, and you're just kind of hanging out. What that means for you is that your harvest is coming. I don't know when it's coming, but it's coming. For some of you, you're on the brink of the promised land. You're not being held in a season of waiting. God is trying to push you into a season of promise. But you are, you are setting your foot down. You're like afraid to move. You're reluctant to move for whatever reason. And you, you need to step out in faith. So there's some of you who need to just sit where you are and listen to what God is saying in the waiting season. Others of you need to step out in courage and boldness. Which are you? I'm going to ask the worship team to come up as we transition into worship through song. And as we do it, you know, uh, as I said at the beginning, we have carpets up here. We, there's a kind of a catwalk that's kind of blocking everything. This is the, what happens when you share space with a high school. Um, but do whatever you can to, to make space to be with the Lord because I want you to reflect on a couple questions. If you need to, you can crawl under. Just be careful. Go into the corners. Stay in your seats. Stand. Do whatever you need to posture your heart and mind and body to hear from the Lord and ask these questions of God today, depending on where you are. Are you trying to get somewhere? You're just trying to move into a new season and you feel like you can't. What is God doing in the midst of that? What is he trying to tell you? Maybe you're trying to rush into a new season. You're trying to take control of things yourself. But God is trying to meet you in the waiting. What is he saying to you right now? Or are you trying to stay where you are? You don't want to move, but you feel this restlessness in your soul. What's God saying to you in the midst of that restlessness? I think he's saying a lot of things to our church. I think he's saying a lot of things to a lot of you. Let's just slow down this morning and make space. Physical space, of course, but also spiritual and emotional social space to hear what God is saying to his people. Your harvest is coming. There's carpets at the front. Prayer teams to the left and to the right if you need prayer. The bread and the cup. You can hoist them up to heaven and remember all that this covenant God has done. 
at you at face level and to make eye contact with you. You are loved. Each and every one of you, you are loved. What's God speaking? 